Prescription products require completion of an online medication consultation with an independent healthcare provider through the LifeMD platform and are only available if prescribed. Subscription required. Individual results may vary. Additional restrictions apply at LifeMD.com. Read all warnings before using GLP-1s. Side effects may include a risk of thyroid C-cell tumors. Do not use GLP-1s if you or your family have a history of thyroid cancer. If you've struggled for years to lose weight and have given up hope, did you know you can now access GLP-1 prescription medications through LifeMD? LifeMD is now offering eligible patients online access to GLP-1s, the breakthrough prescription medication that can help you lose body fat and weight. Listen to what people are saying. You just take your shot. It doesn't feel like you're on a diet. What I wasn't expecting it to do was to shut off the food noise. This was life-altering, and if I can do it, I feel like anybody can do it. And here's the best part. Your insurance may cover 100% of the cost of your medication. So go to TryLifeMD.com to have your eligibility checked right now. Get started today at TryLifeMD.com. That's T-R-Y-L-I-F-E-M-D.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. If you enjoy listening to Corology, then I need your help. Here's why. I create Corology by myself on a shoestring budget, recording and editing every episode in my tiny closet. How's that for irony? That's where you come in. Will you help keep Corology on the air by supporting it financially? By tipping as little as $1 a month, you can help me improve and keep making Corology every week. All you have to do is jump over to MatthiasRoberts.com support to make a pledge and listen away. Hey friends, this is Matthias Roberts, and you're listening to Queerology, a podcast on belief and being. This is episode 68. Liberation movements need to understand how they got where they are. I remember going home for summer break when I was an undergrad between my freshman and sophomore year. And that was the first summer that I started to wrestle with the idea of what if it's okay to be gay and Christian? I mean, even what if it's okay to be gay? Like, <laughs> and I started looking everywhere for resources. And one of the first resources I found was this documentary on Netflix called For the Bible Tells Me So. And I, like, late at night, put my headphones in and pressed play on that documentary and watched so many people's stories of reconciling their faith with their sexual orientations. And one of the people that was prominently featured in that film was Bishop Gene Robinson. Uh, At the time, I thought all of these people were heretics. I was like, there's no way these people are actually Christians. Uh, and, and I had the pleasure to spend some time with Gene in New York City a few weeks ago and realized very quickly that he might actually be way more Christian than I am. <laughs> and he has always been an incredible person. And I'm so excited to have him on the podcast today. Bishop Gene Robinson is the first openly gay man to be elected bishop in the high church traditions of Christendom. 
He was invited in 2009 by President Barack Obama to give the invocation at the inaugural ceremonies at the Lincoln Memorial, and he was elected bishop of the Episcopal Diocese of New Hampshire on June 7th, 2003, a ceremony to which he had to wear a bulletproof vest because of the death threats. More recently, he presided over the interment of Matthew Shepard's ashes in the Washington National Cathedral last fall. And he's the author of two books, In the Eye of the Storm, Swept to the Center by God, and God Believes in Love, Straight Talk About Gay Marriage. Jean is currently the vice president of religion at the Chautauqua Institution in New York and spends his time advocating and writing for human rights all over the globe. So with that, welcome back to Queerology. We're off to a great start in 2019. And let's just go ahead and dive in. Gene, hi, welcome. Uh, Hi, uh, and Happy New Year. Happy New Year. It's so good to have you on the podcast today. Thank you. I'm delighted to be here. So to start, this is a question I ask everyone. uh, But how do you identify? And then how would you say that your faith has helped form that identity? I guess I would... Uh, initially identify in a couple of ways. Uh, one would be with my pronouns, he, him, and his. Um, and of course, uh, we know about that and we care about that because of our transgender brothers and sisters. Um, and I would also identify as gay uh, among the uh, many, many, many letters that we are accumulating. Um, in terms of my faith relating to that, both um, really relating to both of those identities, um, with respect to LGBTQIA and who knows what new letter we added this morning, um, I, you know, it, it comes out of my faith, uh, the understanding that, that human beings are infinitely complex and and in our effort to make reality a bit more manageable, uh, we started lumping people into categories. And, and I think what we are learning and, um, and, and we've certainly learned it, I think, in the, um, LGBTQ community, um, is that sometimes, um, stuffing people into boxes in which they don't really fit uh, does violence to them. And my faith tells me that, uh, we don't want to do that. We don't want to do violence to anyone. I think, you know, for a long time, uh, that was because we, we just didn't know our consciousness had not been raised to a point to, uh, to be more sensitive to this. And, and, and now there's, there's no excuse not to know it. And so I think both with, with um, in terms of our gender identity, but also our identity on those um, on those many uh, uh, letters that we use to describe our community, uh, I think I think my understanding of God's uh, diversity and God's uh, complexity and the the complexity that God built into the creation uh, it makes me care about those things. I also, you know, I I guess I would also say that. Um, I mean, you know, uh, sometimes when I'm speaking to a heterosexual audience, uh, I'll inevitably get the question like, why all those letters? And, and seems like you just keep adding to them. And, and my, res- and, and, and I always say, well, that's true, actually. Um, but I think, I think 
where we are headed, I hope, and, and this would also come out of my faith, uh, I think we're headed to a place where we understand that, that there are as many sexualities, plural, as there are human beings. Uh, in the sense that no two of us have had the same history, emotional history, um, a physical history, um, romantic history, sexual history. And in that sense, each of us is a unique sexual being. So it would be really nice if we didn't have to use any labels. But as long as we're going to use them, I think we need to keep expanding um, that list um, for as, as many people as identifying themselves as, as being something different. Here's what uh, I say to that same heterosexual audience is, what letters should we use for you? Like, you're not just one big blob of heterosexual energy. Um, there have to there, there has to be diversity within your community. So what letters do you want me to use for you? What, what letters would describe the various parts of, of uh, people who would identify themselves as heterosexual? And then I remind them that, that for the most part, heterosexual people don't have to do that work. They don't have to stay up late at night figuring that out in order to uh, make a go of it in the world. And it's something that that those of us in the LGBTQ community, having done that, uh, some of that work, uh, we actually might be helpful to them um, in doing that work for themselves. So uh, all of that uh, relates to my my faith in the sense that um, you know, growing up, I I certainly um, was scared to death that I was attracted to. Um, uh, people of the same sex, uh, same gender, and uh, was incredibly fearful that it was not a, a passing phase and did everything I could to change that. And and so being able to embrace gay as, as a descriptor of me um, was really a, a faith journey. And, and I actually, you know, in 1986, that's what, 30 almost 33 years ago now, um, when I came out, um, it, it felt like I was called out by God, um, that, that I could no longer walk into a pulpit and, and call people to a life of authenticity and, and not try to live a life of authenticity myself. So it, it very much, um, felt like a call from God. And, and, and the story I love to <laughs> retell uh, about that is the story of Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead. And he, Jesus calls into the tomb to Lazarus. And the words he uses are, come out. And uh, most people think that means coming out of the tomb and, and coming out of denial of being gay is, is like coming out of a tomb. So uh, very much, very much rooted in my faith journey. I mean, you've been, you've been in ministry for the majority of your life. And so, so you've kind of been holding these two tensions together of where like, I feel like a lot of us think that, that this faith and sexuality conversation is like a, a recent conversation that's come up within the last 10 years or so, which is completely not true. And we've talked about that on the podcast before, but 
you've lived this life of 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 ministry and working with your sexual orientation and and i'd be curious like what has like tell me more about that journey like what has that been like being i mean a, a pioneer of sorts <laughs> in this world it, you know it's it's honestly hard for me to remember a time when i wasn't trying to span those two those two worlds um, literally, um, from, from the very beginning, I mean, my, I grew up really, really poor. Uh, my, my parents were tobacco sharecroppers in Kentucky and about as, about as close to slavery as, as white people have come in this country. And, um, uh, I didn't live in a house with running water until I was 10. And yet from the very earliest age, I was involved in the church. My family was very, very religious. And um, I can't remember uh, not hearing um, from the pulpit and from others in my church that uh, people who were like what I was afraid I was uh, were an abomination uh, to God. And, and, and that word, because we don't use it, very much has a really potent ring to it. I mean, it's, it's as if God is disgusted with us. It's not just that God thinks we're doing the wrong thing. Um, but that God is literally, uh, revolted by us. And, and, um, so from, a, from the very earliest, um, uh, that I was aware of these two, these two worlds, I, I have felt, um, like I had a foot in each one. I think once I finally laid claim to my being gay, um, you know, I was already ordained by that point. And, and frankly, in 1986, when I came out um, and I was ordained, um, the only thing I was actually sure about was that my life as an ordained person in the church was over. I mean, I just, I, that was uh, an assumption that. I didn't even agonize over it. It just seemed clear to me uh, that, uh, you know, I, I could be a part of the church. I could sit in the pew, but I, I would never function again as an ordained person. And, and so uh, uh, talk about an experience of grace. Um, the, the fact that that has turned out not to be true is, is one of the most powerful experiences of grace uh, that I know. Um, I, I also want to just tell you a, a, a quick story. Um, you may be aware and your listeners may be aware that um, it was my great honor to preside over the burial of the ashes of uh, Matthew Shepard, some tw 20 years and the 20th year anniversary of uh, his killing. And, um, and if, if, if you watched that service um, that was live streamed from the National Cathedral, uh, you'll know that uh, I, I barely got through it. I was so emotional. Now, part of that was just the, the honor of it and so on. But a piece of it was that I have felt like I've had one foot in the church and one foot in the LGBTQ community my whole life. And on that day, for an hour and a half, those two worlds came together. And we had, 
we had LGBTQ people coming back to church. And I say that in the, not to that particular building, but back to the church that had horrifically hurt most of them, have called them uh, despicable names and has treated them uh, with disrespect. And uh, for, uh, and, and I started out that service by saying to LGBTQ people who were there, I want you to know that I know what an act of courage it is for you to come back to the church like this today, um, the church that um, has hurt so, so many of you. And, um, and I think I was so emotional because I've had to live with one foot in each world. And on that day, for one brief moment, uh, those two worlds came together. And that was such an overwhelming experience. And um, and and maybe a foretaste of heaven. Yeah, I I, I just I just watched that um, right before we hopped on this call, and I was getting teary. Like it was such an emotional experience. You know, um, uh, interestingly, um, uh, someone tweeted to me afterwards, and uh, a very nice thing, and said, uh, "Thank you for giving me the closure I didn't know I needed." And I think, I think, uh, that was true for lots of us. Uh, I didn't know I needed it either. But in doing it, I realized that it, it calmed and soothed this place inside of me that was still painful and, um, uh, and causing me anxiety and discomfort and, and, uh, and pain. And, and so I, I think it turned out to be emotional for so many of us because uh, we didn't, we didn't know that we were carrying around a burden, uh, much as Judy and Dennis Shepard, uh, Matt's parents were carrying around his ashes. And in, in their decision to finally bury those ashes, and in our finding a safe place at the Washington National Cathedral uh, to to um, inter those ashes, um, they they laid that burden down. And I think uh, I I I specifically asked them would they be willing to do a public service? It, they were going to do something private, and I said, you know, I I just have this sense that a lot of us need to. Um, to be a part of uh, uh, that that movement that you're about to make, and if you could just be generous with us yet one more time, I mean, you've shared Matt with us for 20 years. If you could share him with us one more time in a public service, I think I think it would be incredibly healing, and and I th- I think it turned out uh, to be a very healing moment. I'm curious, Gene, because I get I get this question all the time from from especially from queer people who've left the church, and there there's so many people who have, and for very very good reason. Um, the, the question I get is is why have you stayed? And I know I have my answer for that question, but I'd be curious, like f- for you, like why why have you stayed in the church your your whole life? Well, uh, um, uh, a couple of things. I mean. Uh, so let me give you a uh, sort of a public answer and then a private answer. My, the public answer, because I, I'm, uh, when I'm speaking inevitably, uh, someone, someone stands up 
And it's usually a young gay man, Roman Catholic, who says, Bishop, should I leave my church? And what I say, what I say to that young man is, so look, if a church is there to facilitate your relationship with God, and if, if the Roman Catholic Church is still, is still giving you that, is still helping you with your relationship with God, uh, then by all means stay and help with whatever change you can bring about. But if, if your church has ceased to do what it promises to do for us, uh, both individually and as a community, which is to bring us uh, closer to God, uh, then, then run for your life. And, and only you can answer that question. So for me, uh, personally, privately, um, I, I've never lived without the church. I mean, I, I cannot remember a time when I wasn't in church or singing in church or reading in church or, um, I mean, I had, I grew up with, uh, um, uh, records like, I think they might have been, uh, th th this will really freak everybody out uh, who's listening. Uh, I think they were like, I think the speed was 78. Wasn't, uh, remember the records before 45s? Uh, so those big old uh, heavy records, uh, we had, we had them of, of somebody preaching and I memorized every word and preached along with them at, and, you know, when I was like five years old. So, <laughs> Uh, I have literally never been without the church, although I have questioned it plenty and, um, and I'm constantly fighting with it, but leaving it has almost been unthinkable. Um, I, I'm, uh, I think the thing that has allowed me to stay is that I never confuse the church with God. God never gets it wrong and the church often, very often does or takes a very long time uh, to hear what God is saying about uh, something. And, uh, and so uh, I've never had a problem with God and, and I fight with the church all the time. And, in, but until something comes along that is able to better connect me with God than the church and the church's sacraments and rituals and so on, uh, that I'm sticking with it. I, I feel like that's a really beautiful picture of of what of what church is supposed to be. And I think as as a lot of queer people return to communities that are affirming and that do celebrate us, like we refind that richness of of who God is within within those walls. Yeah, I I absolutely agree. It also helps me connect with a whole bunch of people in the Bible. So imagine what it was like to be a leper, uh, forced to leave your family and whatever community, go live with other lepers in a, in a cave or a, in a graveyard or somewhere, and to have this guy from Nazareth um, who seemed to, to you know, uh, be gaining in reputation, uh, to come up to you and not only speak to you, but put his hand on your shoulder and and make you feel like a human being. I, I know what that feels like, don't you? Mm -hmm. 
Yes. I, I know exactly what that feels like. And every, every uh, affirming uh, church congregation, every, every, every uh, Jewish congregation, every Muslim congregation who welcomes uh, a queer person in that way is, is doing exactly uh, what Jesus did when he reached out to all those on the margins. Speaking of margins, I, I, I think one thing that I, I haven't touched on on this podcast and that I've wanted to for a while is is this idea of this is a complete shift. <laughs> okay. But is, is this idea of like ageism within the LGBTQ community, especially wow. within have like- you have you come to the right place? <laughs> You have come to the right guy. <laughs> yeah, because I know, like we we had a, a small conversation yeah. about this in New York a few weeks ago. Um, but I would love to talk about this because it's a big issue, especially for gay men. But I think throughout our community, it's we we don't have intergenerational friendships. We don't like. There's well, uh, so I, I, you know, I'm thinking about this in. Uh, uh, a more pressing way than I have uh, before. I'm 71 years old, and um, uh, despite the fact that my my dad is 93 and healthy as a horse, uh, I, I'm also very aware of of being um, older and or just plain old old, I suppose. Um, and so. So this is really interesting. So I think first, let's put it in the context of the entire American culture doesn't do well with old people, right? So, so it's not like the queer community is, is somehow deficient uh, in a way that the rest of the culture isn't. It's that um, uh, that's the context, which is that we pay precious little attention to um, the needs uh, and aspirations of of older people, but it takes on, for me, it takes on a broader uh, and deeper um, question, uh, which is why, in particular, should uh, queer people uh, nourish their relationships with older queer people? Um, and, you know, well, for starters, it might be nice for those who so casually call themselves queer um, to have an older queer person tell them how long it took to feel comfortable with calling themselves queer and why, um, be- because it was the word of choice uh, to hurt someone uh, when people my age were growing up. Um, but even more deeply, I think, especially for liberation movements, um, however uh, uh, described and, and but, uh, going by whatever name, I think liberation movements need to understand how they got where they are. And I think it's probably the case that that sort of early pioneers, whether it be in the civil rights movement for people of color or the, um, the gay rights movement for queer people or whatever, it's really important to those who, who were there early on um, to, to get to share that history 
with those who are the greatest beneficiaries of it. And, and what you say about, uh, about the, the relationships between the generations being, um, somewhat few and far between in our community, uh, is a sort, uh, a source of both concern for me, because I think there are real ramifications of it, and, and also great sadness. Um, and, and it goes also for people, uh, who are my age, let's say in their seventies or eighties or whatever, uh, who, who don't correct someone who says, wow, uh, in the, in the 15 years since Stonewall, we have come a long way. And, and the correction that needs to be made is, look, you young whippersnapper, uh, <laughs> there, there were people doing this work, um, who put themselves in more danger than you have ever thought of putting yourself in, in doing this work in the forties and fifties and sixties when, when we didn't even have the word yet. Uh, we, we didn't have the word gay to describe ourselves yet. And yet there were people underground at great risk to themselves and their careers and so on, uh, laying the groundwork for what eventually uh, turned into Stonewall and eventually turned into marriage equality and, and all of the benefits that we enjoy today. I just think that, that we are diminished or, or we, or, or we lack the kind of grounding that knowing our history, uh, uh, gives us. This may be too broad of a question, but when you think about just the history that you've that you've even lived yourself, what is the snippet of the history that you wish younger LGBTQ people knew just from your own experience? Yeah, and and let me let me relate it to to something that is a bit in everyone's experience. Uh, when the movie Milk uh, came out, I heard um, a kind of a a person on the street interview that NPR did with uh, young LGBT people uh, in Los Angeles, of all places. I mean, we're not like we're not talking about Keokuk, Iowa. We're talking about Los Angeles on the streets. And about half of them who identified as LGBT uh, had no idea who Harvey Milk was. Now, that's in the same state in a very liberal city. They had no idea who Harvey Milk was. The interesting thing, I, I think, and the, the important thing both in that movie and in real life is that uh, Harvey Milk made all of his activist staff come out to their parents and, and to everyone. And there's a, a wonderful scene in the movie where he makes, he makes one of his uh, right-hand staff uh, call his parents and come out to them right there on the phone with everybody listening. And, and because, because what Harvey Milk kept saying was, until we come out, they have no idea who we are and that we have always lived in their midst. And once they know us, I think he went on to say this, once they know us, they will love us. Well, that's, yeah, you know, that's, for the most part, I think that's true. There are some of us that aren't aren't terribly likable, but uh, most of us are, and and I think if you and we know we know beyond with with unbelievable data behind it is that knowing someone gay is the greatest indicator of of 
how positive a person um, will be around our issues. So, uh, so the um, so my personal take on that is, um, you know, at at the time I came out, as I mentioned before, I I was ready to give up my um, my not just my career, but my calling, as I would understand it, uh, to the ordained ministry. I knew that um, if my wife chose to try to preclude me from uh, seeing my children, that the courts would completely back her up and that I would, I would not have a piece of ground to stand on. Because in 1986, virtually every court in, uh, in America um, was reticent to give visitation rights uh, to gay men uh, to their children. And, uh, and in some cases, they were only allowed to see their children with, with another adult, pre- you know, another adult present, uh, uh, a chaperone. So, uh, I think what I would like, what I would like younger, um, LGBTQ people to, to remember is that they enjoy these, um, remarkable, Benefits and a, and a, and an astounding and and surprising level of acceptance on the backs of a whole bunch of people uh, who came out at very great risk and and for me uh, there is there's n- there is not an uh, elder AG- LGBTQ person that doesn't have that particular story to tell. This is so interesting. I, I feel like as I've been realizing how little history I actually know, I think about like so many of us grew up in conservative Christian households, at least people who listen to this podcast. Like we were taught history from a certain perspective. And so, of course, we didn't learn anything about LGBTQ history, which means right. that then the responsibility now falls on us at this time to learn it, which takes effort. But I mean, I'm. I'm working on that and, and trying to learn about history that isn't even that far back. Like, <laughs> right. It's right, not exactly. that long ago. Right. And, and, uh, and like I say, and there's, there is not an older uh, LGBTQ person who doesn't have that story to tell. And literally all it takes is to say, gosh, tell me what it was like for you growing up. Uh, knowing or suspecting that you were gay, uh, and and generally speaking, uh, those older LGBTQ people will start to talk, and you will learn all sorts of things. Um, and it, and it, you know, there's some uh, you know recent history. I I lived with uh, death threats for two and a half years, daily death threats for two and a half years at, when I was uh, elected and consecrated a bishop. And, um, and as recently as 2009, um, um, my then partner and I were at home. We lived, uh, out in the country, um, um, west of Concord, New Hampshire. And we got a call from the Vermont State Police, um, who said, uh, Bishop Robinson, we just arrested a man here in our little town in Vermont, um, who came through our town in a rage and, and shot the windows out of an empty parked police cruiser. And when we caught up to him, he had 
beside him in the passenger seat, uh, MapQuest Maps, remember MapQuest? <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, had MapQuest Maps to your home, had, um, cop- uh, had uh, printed out a picture of you and your partner uh, from the internet and had scrawled across it, uh, save the church, kill the bishop. And he had a sh- uh, sawed-off shotgun and tons of ammunition. And we, we're pretty sure he was going to ring your doorbell and blow your head off. Wow. Now, that's 2009, right? It literally just 10 years ago. I had two weeks before that, um, and I, I had been in the news for this, of course. Uh, two weeks before that, I had been asked by Barack Obama to give the invocation at the opening inaugural event um, uh, at the Lincoln Memorial. And and every time I was again in the news, um, these kinds of threats would uh, would come up. So that's that's only 10 years ago. So uh, yet we have come a long way, but it took a lot of us taking extraordinary risks um, uh, to get us where we are today. I'm curious, like looking forward, uh, for, for people who are kind of wanting to pick up this torch and, and join you in the work that you've been doing for so long. And so many other people have been doing so long. Like I'm hearing one, like learn the history, um, (laughs) but two, Mm -hmm, like what, what advice would you have for people who are wanting to carry this work forward? You know, I, I think, it's a largely unanswered question. Um, it's it's um, it's a question that uh, the LGBTQ group known as Sage organization known as Sage, which um, uh, are advocates for uh, gay elders, uh, LGBTQ elders, um, and and one of the, one of their issues um, that that I think is a way in for. Um, for any who might be interested, um, what those of us my age are facing um, is the fact that uh, it's greater than 80% of uh, elderly uh, uh, housing, uh, um, uh, nursing homes, and continuing care facilities, over 80% of them are are either owned uh, or um, related to a religious group. And, um, and what we're finding is that, uh, many, uh, queer elders are having to go back in the closet if they want to live in such a place. Um, they're, they're, um, uh, they're not welcome there as, as an openly gay person. If they have a spouse who, who is not yet in need of that kind of care, the spouse may very well have trouble uh, visiting uh, or visiting at particular times because, quote unquote, only uh, close family can come. And um, um, or if if two gay elders uh, happen to be married, um, uh, most of these facilities uh, won't let them uh, uh, share a room. I mean, there there are just extraordinary um Circumstances that that uh, many elders, uh, gay elders, face that uh, that is heartbreaking to think that they would have to to uh, go back to pretending to be someone they're not 
um, to get the care they need. So um, it would be uh, quite remarkable if if younger queer people uh, could could get involved in in that rights movement. You know the the uh, queer elder rights movement, uh, and not to mention going to visit uh, uh, some folks um, who fit into that category uh, who are already in in uh, nursing homes and and other similar facilities. The the other thing is, I, I guess, I I I think all of us uh, in the queer community need to look at how still after all this many years, um, our community seems to be youth obsessed. Um, and, uh, you know, when I, when I became single six years, five or six years ago, uh, and I, uh, you know, I said to my therapist, um, you know, I, I, I go to gay bars and everything, but nobody seems to be, uh, you know, looking to meet anyone there. And he's like, oh my goodness, you, you've been, you've been out of circulation for way too long. That's, you know, that's what grinder and tender and all those things are for. And, uh, and uh, so I, you know, I tried that, but, uh, uh, for the most part, you, you uh, get messages from people, uh, who think you're on there to pay for sex, pay money for sex. And, uh, so it's a, you know, it, it's a whole new world out there. And, um, there's, there's a, 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 a gay elder living near you somewhere who's trying to figure this out. Um, and, uh, part of it is recognizing, I think that, uh, we are, uh, as a community, I think it's, I, I think it's still fair to say, um, uh, fairly youth obsessed and, um, and I think we would be better off not. Um, um, you know, when you have a dinner party for for six queer friends, you know, invite two older uh, queer friends as well. Um, I think uh, you know it's hard to it's hard to talk about this without like sounding like a charity case or you know like uh, you know you're you're sad and you don't have any friends. I've got uh, tons of friends. But I love nothing better than to be in the company of of um, uh, younger LGBTQ people. I, I'm fortunate in the sense that you know I speak to a lot of uh, uh, younger gay, um, lesbian, bisexual, transgender, queer people, um, and and am often invited uh, places where they are. But uh, but I'm unusual in that way, uh, just just because I'm you know, of my particular history and, and my availability to speak and so on. But, uh, for, for a lot of, um, uh, older queer folk, I, I think that's a tough slog and, and, um, it would be a lovely thing for younger, um, um, younger queer people to reach out. I, I also think that, uh, some of our LGBTQ organizations are, are probably the, the best, uh, intergenerational experiences uh that we have as a as a broad community so you know if you go to a lambda legal fundraiser or you go to the hrc national dinner or, or uh, you're you're raising local dollars to um erect a monument to some gay hero um those are places where the the folks who are interested 
across all of the um, uh, age lines, and 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 those are often a, a, a great way to uh, uh, to meet uh, people from other generations. Uh, yeah, that it feels like a a challenge for all of us. Let's do this. Like <laughs> it doesn't take that much more effort, right? Um, or even much effort at all to to bridge those gaps if we if we choose to do that. Yeah. And, and now, let me just tell you one other quick vignette that that sort of points to uh, the the exact uh, problem that you're that you're pointing to. Um. um a few years ago, I was doing a lot of writing for the Daily Beast and Huffington Post and so on. And uh, my editor at Daily Beast uh, said to me, it was it was uh, uh, Pride Week here in Washington, D.C., where I live. And he said, uh, I, you know, I think it would be very interesting if you just circulated uh, on uh, Gay Pride, uh, the day of the Gay Pride March, uh, and ask people uh, what they thought Pride uh, celebrations meant. And and it it turned out to be very discouraging for me um, because the uh, the younger I I got in in the people that I interviewed, the more I heard things like, well, it's just it's it's a day to have fun. It's a day to be with my friends. It's a day to drink a little too much. It's a um, it's a day to have a great party, blah, blah, blah. And the older. uh, the the person interviewed was uh, the more likely it was going to be. Yeah, it's a day to remember our history. It's a day to remember all those whose shoulders we stand on. Um, it was all very much related to um, <laughs> almost like a Veterans Day, you know. And uh, so I I was wondering how to write that up. And um, the next morning I woke up to news of the Pulse nightclub massacre that very next morning. And I so wished that I could go back to all of the people that I had interviewed to say, now what does pride mean to you? And, um, and of course, I couldn't do that because I hadn't kept track of who I had interviewed. But it, it, it really gave me pause. And, and um you know, there was much to celebrate about it. And, and, and instead of the revolutionary act being two men kissing on the street in open and, you know, uh, openly, uh, everywhere you look, there were two men with a baby uh, or two women with a baby. And um, so that, you know, that's that's fantastic. That's a sign of the progress we have made. But on the other hand, um, I, I, it 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 feels like we're losing something, too. Uh, Gene, thank you so very much for joining. This has been such a pleasure. Thank you so much. I, uh, um, uh, I'm just a good example of, you know, you try to talk to an older gay man and he'll talk back. <laughs> <laughs> Imagine that. I'm proving <laughs> my own point. I'm my, I am my own illustration. Well, I'm so grateful. Um, yeah, thank you very, very much. Well, thank you. Uh, it's been a pleasure. You can find Gene on Twitter at Bishop G. Robinson. Pick up a copy of one of his books wherever you find books. And be sure to catch him at the Chautauqua Institution. Their 2019 season is happening June 22nd through August 25th. For more information, check out chq.org. 
Queerology is on Twitter and Instagram at QueerologyPod, or you can tweet me directly at Matthias Roberts. Queerology is supported by its listeners 100%. To find out how you can help keep Queerology on the air, head over to MatthiasRoberts.com support. A really easy way to help support Queerology is by leaving a rating and a review. You can do that right in your podcast app or head over to MatthiasRoberts.com review and it'll take you right there. As always, I'd love to hear from you. If you have ideas of what you want to hear on the podcast or just want to say hi, reach out. I'll try to get back to you. And until next week, y'all, bye. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger, less than five miles away. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.